0: Chapter 10 of Sailing Alone Around the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. Sailing Alone Around the World by Joshua Slocum. Chapter 10 Consisting of Running to Port Angosto in a Snowstorm. A defective sheet-rope places the spray in peril, the spray as a target for a Fuegian arrow. The island of Allen Eric. again in the open Pacific, the run to the island of Juan Fernandez, an absentee king, at Robinson Crusoe's anchorage. Another gale had then sprang up, But the wind was still fair, and I had only twenty-six miles to run for Port Angosto, a dreary enough place, where, however, I would find a safe harbour in which to refit and stow cargo. I carried on sail to make the harbour before dark, and she fairly flew along all covered with snow which fell thick and fast, till she looked like a white winter bird. Between the storm-bursts I saw the headland of my port, and was steering for it when a floor of wind caught the mainsail by the lee, jibbed it over, and dear, dear, how nearly was this the cause of disaster! For the sheet parted, and the boom unshipped, and it was then close upon night. I worked till the perspiration poured from my body to get things adjusted and in working order before dark, and above all to get it done before the sloop drove to leeward of the port of refuge. Even then I did not get the boom shipped in its saddle. I was at the entrance of the harbour before I could get this done, and it was time to haul her to or lose the port. Like a bird with a broken wing, she made the haven. The accident which so jeopardised my vessel and cargo came from a defective sheet-rope, one made from sisal, a treacherous fibre which has caused a deal of strong language among sailors.' I did not run the spray into the inner harbour of Port Angosto, but came to inside a bed of kelp under a steep bluff on the port-hand going in. It was an exceedingly snug nook, and to make doubly sure of holding on here against all willy wars, I moored her with two anchors and secured her besides by cables to trees. However, no wind ever reached there except back from the mountains on the opposite side of the harbour. There, as elsewhere in that region, the country was made up of mountains. This was the place where I was to refit, and whence I was to sail direct once more for Cape Pillar and the Pacific. I remained at Port Angosto some days, busily employed about the sloop, I stowed the tallow from the deck to the hold, arranged my cabin in better order, and took in a good supply of wood and water. I also mended the sloop's sails and rigging, and fitted a jigger which changed the rig to a yawl, though I called the boat a sloop just the same, the jigger being merely a temporary affair. I never forgot, even at the busiest time of my work there, to have my rifle by me ready for instant use for I was of necessity within range of savages, and I had seen Fuegian canoes at this place when I anchored in the port further down the reach, on the first trip through the strait. I think it was on the second day, while I was busily employed about decks, that I heard the swish of something through the air close by my ear, and heard a zip-like sound in the water, but saw nothing.' Presently, however, I suspected that it was an arrow of some sort, for just then one passing not far from me struck the mainmast, where it struck fast, vibrating from the shock, a Fuegian autograph. A savage was somewhere near-there could be no doubt about that. I did not know but he might be shooting at me with a view to getting my sloop and her cargo and so I threw up my old Martini Henry, the rifle that kept on shooting, and the first shot uncovered three Fuegians who scampered from a clump of bushes where they had been concealed, and made over the hills. I fired away a good many cartridges, aiming under their feet to encourage their climbing. My dear old gun woke up the hills, and at every report all three of the savages jumped as if shot. But they kept on— and put Fuego real estate between themselves and the spray as fast as their legs could carry them. I took care then more than ever that all my firearms should be in order, and that a supply of ammunition should always be at hand. But these savages did not return, and although I put tacks on deck every night, I never discovered that any more visitors came, and I had only to sweep the deck of tacks carefully every morning after. As the days went by, the season became more favourable for a chance to clear the strait with a fair wind, and so I made up my mind after six attempts, being driven back each time, to be in no further haste to sail. The bad weather on my last return to Port Angosto for shelter brought the Chilean gunboat Condor and the Argentine cruiser Azor Pardo into port. As soon as the latter came to anchor, Captain Mascarella, the commander, sent a boat to the spray, with the message that he would take me in tow for Sandy Point if I would give up the voyage and return. The thing farthest from my mind. The officers of the Azopardo told me that coming up the strait after the spray on her first passage through, they saw Black Pedro, and learned that he had visited me, The Azopardo, being a foreign man of war, has no right to arrest the Fuegian outlaw, but her captain blamed me for not shooting the rascal when he came to my sloop. I procured some cordage and other small supplies from these vessels, and the officers of each of them mustered a supply of warm flannels, of which I was most in need. With these additions to my outfit, and with the vessel in good trim though somewhat deeply laden, I was well prepared for another bout with the southern, misnamed Pacific, Ocean. In the first week of April, south winds, such as appear about Cape Horn in the fall and winter seasons, bringing better weather than that experienced in the summer, began to disturb the upper clouds. A little more patience, and the time would come for sailing with a fair wind.' At Port Angosto I met Professor Dusen of the Swedish Scientific Expedition to South America and the Pacific Islands. The Professor was camped by the side of a brook at the head of the harbour, where there were many varieties of moss in which he was interested, and where the water was, as his Argentine cook said, muy rico. The Professor had three well-armed Argentines along in his camp to fight savages. They seemed disgusted when I filled water at a small stream near the vessel, slighting their advice to go further up into the greater brook, where it was Muy Rico. But they were all fine fellows, though it was a wonder that they did not all die of rheumatic pains from living on wet ground. Of all the little haps and mishaps to the spray at Port Angosto, Of the many attempts to put to sea, and of each return for shelter, it is not my purpose to speak. Of hindrances there were many to keep her back, but on the thirteenth day of April, and for the seventh and last time, she weighed anchor from that port. Difficulties, however, multiplied all about in so strange a manner that, had I been given to superstitious fears, I should not have persisted in sailing on a thirteenth day, notwithstanding that a fair wind blew in the offing. Many of the incidents were ludicrous. When I found myself, for instance, disentangling the sloop's mast from the branches of a tree after she had drifted three times round a small island against my will, it seemed more than one's nerves could bear, and I had to speak about it, so I thought, or die of lockjaw, and I apostrophized the spray as an impatient farmer might his horse or his ox, "'Didn't you know?' cried I. "'Didn't you know that you couldn't climb a tree?' "'But the poor old spray had essayed and successfully too "'nearly everything else in the Strait of Magellan, "'and my heart softened towards her "'when I thought of what she had gone through. "'Moreover, she had discovered an island. "'On the charts, this one that she had sailed around "'was traced as a point of land. "'I named it Allen Eric Island,' after a worthy literary friend whom I had met in strange by-places, and put up a sign, Keep off the grass, which, as discoverer, was within my rights. Now at last the spray carried me free of Tierra del Fuego. If by a close shave only, still she carried me clear. Though her boom actually hit the beacon rocks to leeward as she lugged on sail to clear the point— THE THING WAS DONE ON THE THIRTEENTH OF APRIL, 1896. BUT A CLOSE SHAVE AND A NARROW ESCAPE WERE NOTHING NEW TO THE SPRAY. THE WAVES DOFFED THEIR WHITE CAPS BEAUTIFULLY TO HER IN THE Strait THAT DAY BEFORE THE SOUTHEAST WIND, THE FIRST TRUE WINTER BREEZE OF THE SEASON FROM THAT QUARTER, AND HERE SHE WAS OUT ON THE FIRST OF IT, WITH EVERY PROSPECT OF CLEARING CAPE PILLAR BEFORE IT SHOULD SHIFT. So it turned out. The wind blew hard, as it always blows about Cape Horn, but she had cleared the great tide-race off Cape Pillar and the Evangelistas, the outermost rocks of all, before the change came. I remained at the helm humouring my vessel in the cross seas, for it was rough, and I did not care to let her take a straight course. It was necessary to change her course in the combing seas, to meet them with what skill I could when they rolled up ahead, and to keep off when they came up a beam. On the following morning, April 14, only the tops of the highest mountains were in sight, and the spray making good headway on a north course soon sank these out of sight. Hooray for the spray! I shouted to seals, seagulls and penguins— for there were no other living creatures about, and she had weathered all the dangers of Cape Horn. Moreover she had on her voyage around the horn salved a cargo of which she had not jettisoned a pound, and why should not one rejoice also in the main chance coming so of itself? I shook out a reef, and set the whole jib for having sea-room I could square away two points. This brought the sea more on her quarter and she was the wholesomer under a press of sail. Occasionally an old south-west sea rolling up combed athwart of her, but did no harm. The wind freshened as the sun rose half-mast or more, and the air, a bit chilly in the morning, softened later in the day, but I gave little thought to such things as these. One wave in the evening, larger than others that had threatened all day, One such as sailors call fine-weather seas, broke over the sloop fore and aft. It washed over me at the helm, the last that swept over the spray off Cape Horn. It seemed to wash away old regrets. All my troubles were now astern. Summer was ahead, all the world was again before me. My wind was even literally fair. My trick at the wheel was now up, and it was five p.m., I had stood at the helm since eleven o'clock the morning before, or thirty hours. Then was the time to uncover my head, for I sailed alone with God. The vast ocean was again around me, and the horizon was unbroken by land. A few days later the spray was under sail, and I saw her for the first time with a jigger spread. This was indeed a small incident— but it was the incident following a triumph. The wind was still southwest, but it had moderated, and roaring seas had turned to gossiping waves that rippled and pattered against her sides as she rolled among them, delighted with their story. Rapid changes went on those days, in things all about while she headed for the tropics. New species of birds came around, Albatrosses fell back, and became scarcer and scarcer. Lighter gulls came in their stead, and pecked for crumbs in the sloop's wake. On the tenth day from Cape Pillar a shark came along, the first of its kind on this part of the voyage to get into trouble. I harpooned him, and took out his ugly jaws. I had not till then felt inclined to take the life of any animal, But when John Shark hove in sight, my sympathy flew to the winds. It is a fact that in Magellan I let pass many ducks that would have made a good stew, for I had no mind in the lonesome strait to take the life of any living thing. From Cape Pillar I steered for Juan Fernandez, and on the 26th of April, fifteen days out, made that historic island right ahead. The blue hills of Juan Fernandez, high among the clouds, could be seen about thirty miles off. A thousand emotions thrilled me when I saw the island, and I bowed my head to the deck. We may mock the Oriental Salaam, but for my part I could find no other way of expressing myself. The wind being light through the day, the spray did not reach the island till night with what wind there was to fill her sails, she stood close into shore on the northeast side, where it fell calm and remained so all night. I saw the twinkling of a small light farther along in a cove, and fired a gun, but got no answer, and soon the light disappeared altogether. I heard the sea booming against the cliffs all night, and realized that the ocean swell was still great although from the deck of my little ship it was apparently small. From the cry of animals in the hills, which sounded fainter and fainter through the night, I judged that a light current was drifting the sloop from the land, though she seemed all night dangerously near the shore, for the land being very high, appearances were deceptive. Soon after daylight I saw a boat putting out towards me, as it pulled near it so happened that I picked up my gun which was on the deck, meaning only to put it below. But the people in the boat, seeing the piece in my hands, quickly turned and pulled back for shore, which was about four miles distant. There were six rowers in her, and I observed that they pulled with oars in oarlocks, after the manner of trained seamen, and so I knew they belonged to a civilised race." "'but their opinion of me must have been anything but flattering "'when they mistook my purpose with the gun "'and pulled away with all their might. "'I made them understand by signs, "'but not without difficulty, "'that I did not intend to shoot, "'that I was simply putting the piece in the cabin, "'and that I wished them to return. "'When they understood my meaning, "'they came back and were soon on board. "'One of the party, whom the rest called King, "'spoke English.' the others spoke Spanish. They had all heard of the voyage of the spray through the papers of Valparaiso, and were hungry for news concerning it. They told me of a war between Chile and the Argentine, which I had not heard of when I was there. I had just visited both countries, and I told them that, according to the latest reports, while I was in Chile, their own island was sunk "'This same report that Juan Fernandez had sunk "'was current in Australia when I arrived there three months later. "'I had already prepared a pot of coffee and a plate of doughnuts, "'which after some words of civility the islanders stood up to "'and discussed with a will. "'After which they took the spray in tow of their boat "'and made towards the island with her at the rate of a good three knots. "'The man they called King took the helm.' and with whirling it up and down he so rattled the spray that I thought she would never carry herself straight again. The others pulled away lustily with their oars. The king, I soon learned, was king only by courtesy. Having lived longer on the island than any other man in the world, thirty years, he was so dubbed. Juan Fernandez was then under the administration of a governor of Swedish nobility, so I was told, I was also told that his daughter could ride the wildest goat on the island. The governor, at the time of my visit, was away at Valparaiso with his family, to place his children at school. The king had been away once for a year or two, and in Rio de Janeiro had married a Brazilian woman, who followed his fortunes to the far-off island. He was himself a Portuguese and a native of the Azores. He had sailed in New Bedford whale-ships, and had steered a boat. All this I learnt, and more too, before we reached the anchorage. The sea-breeze coming in before long filled the spray's sails, and the experienced Portuguese mariner piloted her to a safe berth in the bay, where she was moored to a boy abreast the settlement. End of chapter 10 Recording by Allan Chant in Tunbridge, Kent, England WW dot UK